Hey everyone, and welcome to the All It Takes is a Goal podcast, the best place in the entire world, including all of Canada, to learn how to build new thoughts, new actions, and new results. I'm your host, John Acuff, and today I'm joined by Annie Murphy-Hall. Who's that? I'm so glad you asked. Annie Murphy-Paul is an acclaimed science writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Scientific American, and the best American science writing, among many other publications. Her latest book is The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. Published in June of 2021, it has been selected as an Amazon editor's pick for best nonfiction and as an editor's choice by the New York Times Book Review. She is currently a Learning Sciences Exchange Fellow at New America. And I'm just going to tell you, her book is fantastic. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. There were so many things when I read it that I immediately put into action in my own life. And she's brilliant. And I can't wait for you to hear this interview. But first, a quick message about the sponsor of today's episode. Today's sponsor is me. I've been really surprised at how many people who listen to this podcast have reached out to me about having me speak at their events. I love that. And here's why. Over the last 13 years, I've had the honor to help hundreds of companies like Nissan, Walmart, Microsoft, and Comedy Central at events around the world. And during that time, I've developed three big goals for your event. Number one, I want to slingshot your audience into the best year they've ever had. Whether I'm opening, closing, or somewhere in the middle of the event, I want to launch everyone out of that room with actionable, memorable things that they can apply to their work and lives immediately. Number two, my second goal, I want the sound team engaged and laughing. The sound team has heard it all. They have. And if I can make them laugh and learn along the way, the audience is going to absolutely love the keynote. And number three, my third goal, I want you to get text messages during the keynote. My favorite sentence to hear from you after I speak is, John, my phone was blowing up during your keynote. I'm there to make you look like a rock star, not me. If your boss texts you during my speech and compliments you on how well the event is going, then I know I've done my job. Whether it's virtual or live, 10,000 people in an arena or 15 sales team members on WebEx or Zoom or, or Microsoft Teams, I'd love to help you with your next event. Fill out the quick form at acuff.me slash speaking to check my availability. That's acuff, A-C-U-F-F dot M-E slash speaking. All right, with no further ado, here's my interview with Annie Murphy-Paul. Annie, I'm so glad that you're here with me today. Your book is fantastic. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, thanks for joining me today on All It Takes is a Goal. Thank you, John. I'm so happy to be here. I'm going to, I told you I wouldn't read your bio because it's always embarrassing when somebody reads your bio in front of you. Um, but I am going to read three stats about your books that are pretty impressive. Okay. Um, they're from your Twitter account, so these shouldn't surprise you. Number one is your book, The Extended Mind, Power of Thinking Outside the Brain, is one of 100 notable books by the New York Times. Pretty amazing. Number two, it's one of 50 notable books of nonfiction by the Washington Post. And number three, Amazon Editors is one of their picks for best nonfiction. That's an amazing trifecta. 
Um, have you been surprised by the reception? Have you been overwhelmed? What's been your, you know, you release a book into the world. How's the response been? Yeah, well, it's been gratifying above all because this book nearly killed me oh, yeah. <laughs> to write. It was a lot of blood, sweat and tears. And so to put a book out into the world, you know, you never know what it's, what the reception is going to be. And it's been so gratifying to feel like it did speak to people. It did speak to some, some number of people who said, I get this, you know, when you're writing a book, it's like, you don't, you don't know, maybe you're crazy, you know, maybe maybe it doesn't make any sense at all. So it's been great to have it go out there into the world and find a, find a place. I, I can assume that one of the things that almost killed you um, as a writer, it's fun to interview other writers, was the amount of research. Mm-hmm. I would say a single chapter of The Extended Mind has more research than most books have in the entire book. Um, is the research part of it fun for you? Like, is it somewhere in the middle? It's fun. Um, it's almost too fun because, um, you know, John Updike, the novelist John Updike called research the innocent part of a book project because uh-huh. it's all potential. You know, it's all kind of you haven't put your own stamp on it yet. You haven't messed it up yet. You know, so and the problem with being a, a science writer, as I am, is that research keeps being produced. So like you wake up and you're your Google Scholar alerts, you know, tell you about 10 new studies that you have to read, you know, so at some point, you just have to say, okay, I have created a framework here that hopefully can help anyone who reads this book organize any new information that comes in, Mm -hmm. according to this sort of set of themes that I've put out there. And I don't need to be you know, including every last study, but I did include a lot of studies. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's really impressive. I'm curious, what inspired you to write this book, this topic? I think about in my own life, I get, I find a question I can't stop thinking about, a question that won't leave me alone, a question I'm willing to talk about for years. Then I look for a need. Is there a, a, a human need that other people are expressing? Is there a spot for it in the marketplace? What led you down this particular path? Yeah, yeah. Well, so it was definitely an incidence of what they call me search, you know, like doing research on something that was personally meaningful mm-hmm. because uh, I have two kids. Uh, they're now 12 and 15. But uh, and actually, my a previous book of mine looked at the science of prenatal influences. And I wrote that when I was pregnant with my second child. So that was totally that was really me search. Um, but you know, then those kids were born and got older and went to school. And I found myself becoming fascinated with the science of learning, with how that my kids were learning, how their teachers were teaching them. And then, you know, as a science writer, really interested in this body of research around how the human brain learns. Mm -hmm. So that might have been the book right there, like a book about the science of learning. And in fact, that's what I set out to write. But, you know, the book had other plans for me (laughs) because in the end, I couldn't write a book that was just about like a kind of straightforward, here's how we learn. It just was, that wasn't interesting enough to me um, or it didn't really have the big idea that I was looking Mm -hmm. for because I'm really as a writer I'm really animated by like the big transformative idea that kind of changes how you see things and I wasn't finding that in the the techniques for learning that I was uh, reading and, and researching about and it wasn't until I encountered an idea from philosophy called the extended mind which is this idea that we don't just think with our brains we think with 
our bodies and our physical surroundings and our relationships with other people, I was like, okay, this is a big, exciting idea that I can dig my teeth into. And, you know, little did I know it was almost more, I was biting off almost more than I could chew. But that was, that's what I like. That's what I look for in a, in a book idea, something that's, that's that paradigm shifting. Well, you can definitely feel that in this book because the idea that your mind is extended beyond just your brain and kind of how you approach ideas that have been for decades established what we think about the brain, that the brain is like a muscle or it's a computer and to go, wait a second, there's all these pieces of my mind I might be missing and have access access to mm-hmm. was really surprising. What was the biggest surprise for you in the research process where you bumped into something and said, why aren't more people talking about this? This is crazy. Yeah, well, you know, I always say that writers write what they need to learn. And I would say I went into this project as a very what the book calls brain bound person, meaning I was the kind of person who thinks if you need to get something done, you sit down, you don't move, you don't talk to anybody, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you just, you all look out the window, you like look at your computer and you work until it gets done. And the extended mind and all the research related to that really challenged me to think about that in a new way. And it did lead me to change the way I work, the way I think, the way I sort of arrange my everyday life, because I came to see that the brain, as amazing as it is, is a very limited, specific kind of organ. And to do the things we ask it to do in our our modern world, in our world of knowledge work, it needs help. You know, it needs outside resources. And the more skillfully that we can draw in those external resources to help the brain, the better our thinking can be. Once I saw this sort of brain-bound mode of like, you know, this is how we expect students to, to do their work, how we expect people in the workplace to do their work. Once I saw how limiting that was, I, I did want to kind of shout from the rooftops, like, this is not the best way. <laughs> you know, there's a better way. So that's, I guess, what my book is, is this creed occur, trying to persuade people of that. I, I think it's very persuasive. I know for me, one of the things that I initially reacted to was and I'm going to mispronounce it. Is it interperception? How do you say it? Interoperception. Interoperception. Oh, sorry. In- I said it wrong. <laughs> oh, okay. In- interoception. Interoception. Like interoception. Interoception. Yeah, we got it. Define that term for people. and Because most people haven't heard it. They've definitely heard it mispronounced by me now. So good luck in the future saying it correctly. Um, but explain that idea because that was fascinating. Yeah, so I think everyone does know what interoception is just under a different name. We call it gut feelings. You know, mm-hmm. the idea that there are things we know, but that se- don't seem to come from our conscious mind that seem to well up from the body. And so interoception is just a wonky scientific name for those internal signals and cues that arise from the body that tell us that something's going on. And that could be you know, we feel that our heart is beating faster, or we have butterflies in our stomach, or we feel a tightening in our chest, you know, all these things are, they're really uh, signs of our bodies getting ready, getting us ready, preparing us to take on uh, a challenge. Um, But again, in this brain bound world that we live in, where we think that everything happens up here in the head, we tend to suppress our, our physical sensations and push them aside and, and imagine that they don't have anything to contribute to intelligent thinking. And what I learned from 
the research I did on interoception is that actually those internal cues carry a whole wealth of information and wisdom and experience that we don't have access to if unless we're we're attuned to them and paying attention. Yeah, the thing that struck me was like you said, not going, okay, I got to grit this out. I've got this big project. I'm going to sit at this desk for 10 hours. And if my body is like, hey, we were done four hours ago, I'm going to be like, no, you got to push through it. I, the tiger, get your act together, like stay in isolation. Walking is for old people, whatever. And all of a sudden, I found myself listening to my body and going, oh, okay, we might be done with the creative writing part of the day. Like I still have some email in me and my, I think what I loved about this book was it validated some things that I feel like I was doing naturally. And one example would be for years, when I fly to an event to speak, I work the entire way on the flight because I'm amped. I'm excited about the speech. I have a lot of natural energy, natural momentum. My body's let's, let's do it. If I try to write on the way home, it's terrible. The work is terrible because I'm exhausted. I'm spent. And so I'll watch movies. I'll do things that I normally wouldn't do. And so I find myself doing that after reading your book going, oh, that's paying attention. How much harder is it to pay attention in a modern world where there are 53,000 employees at Facebook whose job title is distract Annie Murphy Paul from understanding what her body is telling her. <laughs> yes, yes. And it's so easy to turn our attention away from what's going on in our bodies, as, as you were saying, and to this endless stream of distractions. I like what you said about listening to your body and noticing these patterns before and after a speech and respecting those. Because what interoception is really for, why it exists, why it evolved, is that it's kind of like, a gauge of our available energy. And it tells us what we need to do to keep our, uh, our bodily systems in, in balance. Um, and what your body's telling you after you give one of those high energy, high octane speeches. And I know, cause I saw you do give one in Cal in California when we were at an event together earlier this fall. And I can imagine how much energy that takes. But what your body is telling you is that it needs time to recover and it needs needs time to refresh itself. And if you were to ignore that and keep pushing, I think you'd find yourself burn out pretty, pretty quickly. And that's not good for anybody's, anybody's productivity or mental health. Yeah, long term, that doesn't lead anywhere good. I think that the idea that that got me the most, the one that I while listening to the audiobook, stopped it to write it down, um, which is the equivalent of like not leaving the car when you have a song <laughs> right, in your the driveway. driveway yeah, yeah. Was the idea in chapter one about cognitive reappraisal? Uh huh. Uh-huh, that uh-huh. what you could have written an entire book on that. That's what I don't think. I don't want people to miss that. Every chapter, there's a moment where you go, "What?" That's yeah. And for me, that was the one, especially the study with stress versus excitement and the reframing. Can you explain that a little bit and give people some insight into that? Yeah, well, this is another reason to really pay attention to really just simply what your body is feeling and, you know, literally, you know, physically what those sensations are, because it's from those raw materials, from those building blocks that we construct emotion. 
uh, emotion is something we kind of make out of um, our brains make out of the physical sensations that are at the bottom of that. So if you think about it, a state like being excited is really similar in terms of its physical sensations to a state of being nervous. You know, in both situations, your palms may be sweaty, your heart may be racing, you may have butterflies in your stomach. But in one sort of construal of emotion, the, the excitement construal, you feel great. You feel energized. You feel like, I want to I do this. I want to take this on. Whereas um, if you construe those very same physical sensations as nervousness, then you think, oh my God, I'm, I'm scared. I can't do this. You know, you might even tell yourself, calm down, which is like the last thing you should do yeah. because your body's telling you something and that's a real message. So to say, calm down is to try to deny the reality of what your body is experiencing. And instead of doing that, what we can do is get in on the ground level of that emotion construction and pay attention just to those really elemental physical sensations. And then instead of telling yourself, I'm so nervous, I'm so nervous, tell yourself, I'm psyched. I'm really excited. I'm really, I'm raring to go. And I know this sounds a little, you know, for the first time you hear it, it sounds a little hokey or something. Mm -hmm. It actually really works because the message you're giving yourself is congruent with the the actual physical sensations that you're 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 sensing. Your body's like, oh yeah, I am kind of I am kind of ramped up, you know. Whereas yeah. if you're saying to yourself, I'm calm, calm down, calm down, you know, that's it. It's not going to work because your body knows different. Yeah, your body can spot the lie and go, no, we're not. Stop that. Like we're amped. Just admit that and point it somewhere positive. And so when I I love that, I just find so many ways that it overlaps with what I recently wrote about with soundtracks, the way you choose thoughts. And so in that moment, choosing the thought, my body has told me this, I choose this. I choose excitement. I choose, I'm looking forward to this. I, I see the signals and versus I'm going to tell myself over and over and over, I'm terrified and then act surprised later that I was terrified. So for me, that was I'm curious, are there any other emotions that map that way? Because in that ch chapter you talked about, okay, you can do that flip, if you will, from uh, stress or excitement. And you can't do it from stress to I'm calm, nothing is going on. But are there other emotions that you can flip like that? Where you know you might say, okay, I'm scared, but this could flip to this or... Like how, are there any other emotions that map that closely? That's a great question. I mean, um, one that I write about in the book that's quite related, so it might not feel that different, is thinking of, um, take going from thinking of stress as debilitating to thinking mm -hmm. of stress as like, um, it's your body preparing you for, for it's mustering its resources yeah. to take on a, a challenge. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's a little bit of a different um, take yeah, on that's the a great excitement, um, nervousness divide. But I, now that you've asked that, I, I'm wondering, could you construe sadness as being reflective, for example, yeah. you know, or, um, or introspective. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a advice columnist named Heather Haverleski, who I really love, who says, um, instead of being ashamed, think of yourself as vulnerable because shame shuts down learning. If you're ashamed, you're not going to be open to new information, but if you're vulnerable, you're like, okay, I'm feeling kind of vulnerable here, but I'm also open to the world and what it has to tell me. So I, I wonder if that could, you could think of that as a kind of flip as well. Yeah, I, I think that's really fascinating. That concept alone to me, 
just really shifted a lot of what I'm thinking about. I'm curious, did writing the book change how you deal with your phone, how you deal with your office? Like, where do you see, because you went on a really beautiful research study, where do you see it changing your own life? Yeah. When you say phone, I think immediately of something that occurs to me probably three times a day, which is I noticed that when I've been working for a while and I need a break, my first impulse is to just switch tabs on my computer to Twitter or to the news or Facebook or whatever. And I learned from my own research that although that feels different, it's actually drawing on exactly the same cognitive resources that our work does, you know, processing language and information. And what I, if I really want to break, what I should do is get up, move my body, go outside, have a social interaction, all these things, you know, with a real person, not, <laughs> not on Twitter. And all these things are going to refresh and restore my mental capacity so much more than just sort of switching the medium of, of what kind of content I'm, I'm uh, consuming on screen, you know, so mm-hmm. that's something that comes up for me all the time. I, I thought that was really interesting that one of the studies you quoted, talked about, they studied kids with ADD, that a 20-minute walk in a park was comparable uh, comparable to uh, medicine, Ritalin or some other medicine, which is, again, goes back to that, like, well, those kids should just calm down. Mm-hmm, like they mm-hmm, should versus mm-hmm. they need to be outside for 20 minutes. Right. Moving around. Moving, moving around. Yeah. I think that your book also gave me freedom to fidget and see that, reframe that. Because I work at home, um, my wife, her like she's downstairs below me, and she will say, "You tap dance while you write." Like it is, I know you found an idea you like by the type of dancing you're doing in your chair. I have worn holes in my jeans, in the butt of my jeans, for moving around in my chair so much. So, and instead of going, "Oh, I should stop that," now I go, "Oh, okay, this is part of the process." Let's take the education space for a minute, where if I'm a teacher and I go, Annie, you've learned all about kids learning, classroom environments. What are three things you'd say, oh, if we could change these three things about a classroom environment, it would change kids' ability to connect with learning? Yeah. Okay. Well, I would say this is my chance to redesign the education system in the US, right? (laughs) It's a small question. Small question on a podcast. Yeah, yeah. So I would say, first of all, let kids move, encourage them to move, not just during recess, although recess is really important because when kids and adults engage in brisk physical activity, they return to their work with um, greater control over their executive functions and greater ability to concentrate and all that. So, but also encourage and allow kids to move while they're learning in the classroom. See if you can uh, incorporate physical movement, gesture, acting things out into the actual learning itself. And then I would say, make sure that the classroom that the kid is in, the classrooms that your your kids are in, reflect something of them back to them. Make sure that there are cues of identity that tell them, give them a vision of who they are and who they're aspiring to be. And also cues of belonging, you know, that let them know you belong to, to a valued group. And then finally, I would say, don't reserve social activity for the lunchroom and for the playground. You know, the human beings are really fundamentally social. We have these powerful social brains. 
let's not exclude that from class. Let's leverage kids' social brains in the service of learning. I, I love that. And I'm sure I could have said, what are the 10 things you'd say? Because I think there's so many specific things that the education system going to go, oh, okay, we can, whether that's natural light versus we got to make sure the kids aren't daydreaming out the window. And then like every study, they do better, they're more productive. And it does overlap with work environments as well. Um, in chapter five, um, I really liked, it was about thinking with built spaces. And there was a study you talked about where there were four different spaces. One was lean, uh, with spare, uncluttered. One was enriched with plants and posters. One was empowered. The person could arrange the room they wanted. And one was disempowered where they came in and rearranged it without Somebody their input. Right, yeah. right. What did the study show on those four groups? Yeah, so it showed that people were actually more productive in the uh, in the enriched spaces that had these, you know, plants and posters, but in particular in the empowered spaces. And people were less productive in these, you know, a lot, a lot of uh, in these spare spaces. And a lot of offices these days sort of aspire to this kind of Steve Jobs, like you know, minimalist aesthetic. Yeah. But it's one actually, pen, one pen. Yeah, it doesn't give people a lot to work with. As I say, the disempowered. Uh, office was people were least productive in that space. And in fact, when they were carrying out the study, one of the participants said that told the experimenter that after watching him come in and rearrange his stuff, uh, the experimenter rearranged his stuff. He said, I wanted to punch you, (laughs) (laughs) which is like, I guess, an occupational hazard for, uh, for researchers. But yeah, I think that speaks to how much we need to have control of our own space. We need to have space that's rich and stimulating. And that's not the way a lot of our cubicles or our classrooms are, you know, are put together. Well, and even more so now where we're doing hoteling or what'd you call it? Hot desking where there's no space that's yours. You just show up and find a spot. How can we help companies swing back the other direction? Because I feel like we swung into that. I talked to somebody the other day who said, my space at work is a shared conference room with three other people. And, you know, it's a conference room table. There's no, it would be weird if he personalized the corner of that. How do we encourage companies to kind of swing back to the middle? Yeah, well, there's an idea that I talk about, an idea from research that I talk about in the book called intermittent collaboration. And that suggests that the best work is produced by people who sort of are able to oscillate between being alone and uh, protected from distraction and able to really immerse themselves in work, but also interact socially and get all those, you know, ideas from other people, all those sort of collisions that come from, you know, tossing ideas around and, and bouncing them off of other people. So I have wondered whether this new kind of hybrid work world that we seem to be entering could support a kind of intermittent collaboration where you have that quiet, protected time when you're home and you can, you know, put all your cues of identity and cues of belonging around you. Um, and then you go into the office and that is specifically a time for this kind of intensive collaboration and social interaction, mm-hmm. which really happens much better in person than over over Zoom. So I, I don't know. I think maybe that model could work. I, obviously, we're all figuring this out as we go along. Yeah, this kind of new version it made me re- remember that when I worked in a big corporation, 
I would have meetings. And then when I would block off time in the afternoon and hide in an empty office, like I remember ducking because the cubicles are pretty low to kind of army crawl my way to an empty room with just one project so that I could actually write the project. Some office environment, it doesn't matter how large your headphones are, people are going to tap your shoulder. Like you could have an air traffic controller headset on and they're still gonna be like, hey, real quick question. Like, <laughs> right, you right. got 60 seconds and it's never, it's never 60 seconds. No, and that's what's so ironic about the open office is that because people need to retreat into that private space that their headphones provide, there's actually less interaction among colleagues when you're in an open office than when people can have a little privacy and space provided by walls, you know? So I think if, if the pandemic brings the end of the open office, that will not have been a bad thing. I think, I think that is fantastic. How have you as a parent um, helped your kids with some of these ideas? Because I find myself doing that where with my daughters, I, you know, I had a daughter who said, I'll never be good at geometry. And I said, well, that's a broken soundtrack. Never's an absolute word. We can learn geometry. Let's change that soundtrack. So where in your parenting do you find yourself going, oh, wait a second, they need to get out more. What are some ways it's, it's kind of bled into your life? Yeah. Well, one maybe surprising um, change has been in the way I think about the growth mindset, which is a really popular idea among parents and teachers, this idea that the brain is a muscle and the more you exercise it, that's how you get stronger. That's how you get smarter. And it's a really empowering message and certainly one that, you know, I was, <laughs> I was one of those parents who didn't say, you're so smart. I said, you tried so hard. You know, I was yeah. really all into the growth mindset and I still very much admire that, that work. But I've, I've come to think that it's, it's limited and limiting in the sense that it's still very brain focused. It's still telling a kid to get better at, at geometry or, or whatever it is. You need to just keep, keep pumping that muscle, keep trying, keep working at it. And that's, that can be very frustrating. I mean, we've already, we've all seen kids reduced to tears because that's, you know, working their brain is just not, is just not um, working for them at that moment. So what I love about the extended mind is that it opens up so many new options for, um, for getting better and, and thinking harder and getting your work done. As you know, in addition to, you know, beyond working, just working your brain harder and harder, you know, maybe you need to go outside, maybe you need to have a conversation about what you're working on with a friend, maybe you need to act it out or gesture with your hands in order to sort of pull those ideas together. So I think that the growth mindset is almost um, part of the culture that focuses us again and again on the brain when really maybe we need to open that up a little bit and think about all these other resources, the body, space, other people that we could be bringing into our work. Well, and when you open it up, it multiplies the possibilities exponentially. And I think that's always been my challenge with nonfiction books is that sometimes the author is wired a certain way and then teaches that way as the way. And so they say, if you don't get up at 4 a.m., you're already behind. That person might like getting up at 4 a.m. That doesn't mean it's the way. But when you take a book like The Extended Mind and say, your brain is this, and then you multiply it by this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and it's extended over a thousand variables, it's a lot less limiting than I must be doing something wrong because this book told me this, this is how to do it. Yeah, yeah. 
it's a little bit of choose your own adventure. Like here's a whole bunch of tools that are available to us as human beings, because really, you know, we evolved, the human brain evolved to not to do all this stuff on its own, but to, to bring in these external resources. It's just that we, we have a bit of a blind spot towards that particular human strength. We think that all of our human intelligence resides in our heads, you know? And Mm -hmm. so it's really about embracing all of our humanity, our whole selves. And those are the wellsprings of our intelligence, not just, not just our brains. When you speak about this topic, you mentioned we did an event together uh, for Sotheby's out in California. It was so much fun. Gorgeous, gorgeous resort. Gosh, it was one of those like, I can't believe we get to do this for a job kind of events. Um, Super fun. When you speak about this event, what's the part of your content that makes people go, oh, what? Wait a second. Because you can tell in an audience, you can tell after the questions they ask. What are you finding with this content that people are kind of identifying with or go, wanting to go deeper on? Yeah, interesting. Well, one thing I, I often point out to people is that we try to do too many things in our heads. We think that, you know, it's okay for kindergartners to like, you know, play with yeah. manipulatives and, and do things, you know, with their hands. But when you're an adult, you really should be doing it all up here in your head. Yeah. But in fact, we think more efficiently and more effectively when we offload, download the contents of our heads onto physical space, uh, whether that's, you know, po- a bunch of post-it notes or a big whiteboard or maybe like a multi-monitor setup. And then once we do that, we can employ these embodied resources that come so naturally to us as humans, like our spatial memory or our proprioception, which is our ability to know where our body parts are in space. Um, and all this, all those resources are wasted when we just try to do it in our heads. So actually a, a real estate agent at that conference said, I have so many things going on. Like, I, how, can you help me sort of, you know, um, figure out how to stay on top of all that? And I said, you should be getting as much of that out of your head as possible. And then manipulating it, those ideas and information as if they're physical objects or navigating through it as if it's like a three-dimensional landscape. Just don't, just don't think you have to keep it all in your head. I I love that. And that's my process for writing books. I always end up sketching the book, even though the book is never graphic or has like, they usually don't have illustrations, but I have to sketch the idea and go, okay, here's, here's the picture of it for you in the creative process. Because a lot of people listening to this podcast, it's about goals. And one of the biggest goals in our country is to write a book. So for you, what's your creative process like? You know, is it you're a notebook person and you're writing them down and you're gathering? Is it you're an Evernote all day and you're collecting there? What's what's your process like? Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. Uh, I'm a... Um inveterate outliner. I just, Mm -hmm. sometimes I think I don't even write. I just make more and more detailed outlines until one day I'm like, oh, there's a book. Oh, there's a book. Yeah. (laughs) Because the kind of writing I do is so, um, I can't kind of wing it. You know, I'm so, I'm so, um, I have to hew so closely to the research findings and be very precise about how I talk about those research findings that I, I always have to know exactly where I'm going. Um, It might be fun someday to try, you know, writing fiction or something where it's a little more um, on the fly. But uh, but for myself, I guess in a way that's it's a kind of cognitive offloading. I can't be structuring the book in my head as I write it. It it all has to be laid out like a map on on the page. 
So the outline is something you're continuing to expand on. It's kind of the home base mm-hmm. and it expands, expands, expands. And then it's eventually a whole chapter <laughs> and that whole chapter. Ideally. I, I, has that changed over time from your first book to your current one? I would say, so I've been a writer for 25 years and I think I evolved a kind of uh, process pretty early on and I, I'm stuck with it. I, I have a writer's group and often someone will say, oh, there's this awesome new piece of, of software or, or a platform or no. something. And no. I'm like, I can't even. No, why would you? <laughs> yeah. You're already doing something difficult. Like, why would you add, hey, there's also a software? No, people tell me, they're always disappointed when they say, what do you use to write? And I say Microsoft Word. And they're like, <laughs> right. oh, I was hoping right. it was a silver bullet software from Slovenia that I've never heard about. Right. Uh, I think people are looking for something to make writing easier. And the truth is, it's just hard. It's just I have not hard. found it. I have not found it. Are you a write every day kind of person? Yeah, just because that's what I do. You know, yeah. um, I've always worked from home. So COVID was not a change for me. So it's like my work-life balance it's not composed of like, now I work and now it's my life. It's kind of all blended together. And that works for me. I don't, I don't, I love my work and it's always what I want to be getting to, you know? So I do write every day, but that's just because that's how I live. That's your, that's your job. Gotcha. Gotcha. What are your goals for, or how do you approach goals? I should say, are you a, I have an annual planning at the end of the year. Are you much more like I have a book deal that I know I need to turn a manuscript in in November. So I'm going to work my way to that. Where do you fall on the detail goals, loose goals spectrum? I could probably be better at setting some more concrete goals because um, I am super interest driven. Like if I'm not interested in something, good luck getting myself to work on it, you know? And that's why I'm a freelance writer because I can choose my own projects. And if I'm interested in something, I will work it won't even feel like work, but I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll endlessly, endlessly toil away on that thing. If I'm not interested, it's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I, whatever, I kind of wake up and I'm like, what, what do I, what do I feel interested enough to work on today? Mm-hmm. You know, so, and then, you know, projects get finished that way, sometimes with a late night thrown in here or there, mm-hmm. but um, I could probably be a little more intentional about setting goals. I think that's I think that's great the idea of the interest um, and letting that lead you and then where that turns into excitement and you're right when you're interested in it the hours feel different mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. when you're not interested the minutes feel different <laughs> oh man and you're just like this is too hard too, <laughs> too rough hard. yeah I would say that one of the things I'm going to try for one of my goals um, for 2022 is the body scan. Um, I thought that was a really practical, um, helpful activity. Can you share a little about how that works, why that works, what it is? Yeah, yeah. So the body scan is a way of tapping into your interoception, of attuning yourself to your interoceptive cues. And some of your listeners may have encountered it um, as as the sort of opening task of of meditation. Often, if you Mm -hmm. do mindfulness meditation, the teacher will first lead you through a body scan where you are bringing open, non-judgmental, accepting, curious attention to each part of your body and paying attention to whatever arises, you know. And what you realize when you start doing this on a regular basis is there's this incredibly rich flow of internal sensations happening all the time, but we're so focused on 
all this external hubbub, you know, that we, we don't, we don't tune into that river of sensations that's there all the time. And I find, I don't even do it in a um, formal kind of sitting on a cushion kind of way. I just Mm -hmm. like a few times a day, try to say like, you know, what's, what's going on in here, you know, and to tune myself to the internal world, just as I'm the rest of the time attuning myself to the external world. I, I love that. And for me, it looks like going, okay, instead of saying you shouldn't be afraid, like, okay, what is that fear trying to teach me right now? Like approaching fear with curiosity versus trying to shove it away. Because there's a lot of kind of self-help, be fearless kind of nonsense where you go, but if you live that way, you lose such a connection to such an education to go, oh, okay, what's, you know, what's, what's happening right now? So I'm curious, are you already working on a new book? Do you always have a bunch of kind of ideas vying to like almost like an American Idol where like they're in the wings and then one becomes the idea? Oh, no, no. I, you know, I needed a break after this book because as I said, it really took a lot uh, to pull together. And I am actually turning back to the science of learning. I just that there's something there that keeps pulling at me and and not just because of my kids that I not just because I'm a parent but because learning is so much uh, a part of what I do as a, as a as a writer and I realize that like that's it's that's when I'm having the most fun is when I'm learning something new so learning is still the science of learning and how that happens is still super interesting to me so I don't know where that's going to go actually there's that's where my goal setting should should could use an upgrade but I to an extent, you have to, at least my own process is you have to remain open to um, ideas and where they take you without imposing your own ideas about where that is. Because you don't. Yeah, it's pretty limiting. Know. Yeah. If yeah. you limit it too soon, you lose a lot of that. Uh, I can really see that being part of the writing process. I, I loved it. I, again, I thought the book was super fascinating. There were a million things in there that, again, you would do a whole book in a paragraph and kind of drop off this like, oh, by the way, you're doing sitting wrong and here's the research. And then like, I'd go, wait, wait, what? Like I need to stand up more as I'm writing. Um, So, so helpful. What is your hope with the, like the takeaway from this book for people? If I'm, you know, I'm going to do everything I can for every listener to grab a copy of it. But, you know, as you think about, oh, if, if you're interested in blank, or if you're looking for blank, or if you learn one thing in the book, I hope it's this, how would you finish that? Hmm, yeah, gosh, I think I would say, you know, we, we're always hearing from popular science accounts about how amazing the brain is, how extraordinary it is. It's the most complex object in the universe. And like, that's all true. And that's all really cool. But we also know that our, our, our own brains fail us all the time. So I think there's something about that. Yeah. That's a little bit like, wait, did I get a bum one? You know, like, cause yeah. my brain, you know, sometimes doesn't do what I need it needed to do. And what I would want people to know is, no, that's the nature of the brain is this biological evolved organ that evolved to do jobs that are very different from the jobs we ask it to do these days. So if your brain is like not really keeping up with all that you need to do, that's not, that's not a problem. That's just the way the brain is. And, and the solution to that is to p- bring in other resources that can help your brain, that can augment the brain's limited natural abilities. Um, that would be the message I'd want people to take away. Do you think people have a hard time bringing in other resources because there's this sense of, I shouldn't need to, I, that's asking for help, that makes me feel vulnerable. 
everybody else does it without needing resources. Like reading your book, you go, the entire world impacts your extended mind. The forest impacts your extended mind. Your brain reacts differently from seeing leaves and not like you heal faster in the hospital if you can see trees, you know, like, but why do we have a hard time accepting that? Yeah, I think there's this really deeply entrenched cultural notion that mind and body are separate and mind is this sort of, you know, cerebral stuff that isn't affected by all this grubby, dirty stuff down here, you know, like in the real world. But that's actually not how the brain works at all. The brain, you know, we are humans are animals. Our brains are intimately connected with the rest of the body. We're really affected, as you say, by where we are and by who we're interacting with. And I think that does make us dependent, you know, on our surroundings and on other people. And we have such an individualistic culture that we may resist that. But I think the more we can embrace the fact that we are creatures of the world, and we're deeply influenced by the world, the more we can use that, you know, and, and take advantage of that. I think, I think that's certainly true. Uh, two last questions. One, what do you get out of your writer's group? Like your extended mind is connected there. What is the writer's, like what role does the writer's group serve for you? Oh man, that writer's group has been going on for almost 20 years. Wow. And, yeah, and it's been even more like helpful and, and essential during the pandemic because we've been meeting by Zoom now for almost two years. But it's like, it's not, we don't read each other's stuff because we all have too much to read already. It's like more like group therapy slash <laughs> mutual aid society. You know, it's just like for, for a bunch of freelance writers who uh, are very independent and very ornery sometimes, you know, it's like our these are our colleagues. These are our people, our tribe, you know, and mm -hmm. um, it's been like just unbelievably um, a source of so much information and helpful guidance. Yes, but also just a sense of like there's people out there rooting for you, you know, which mm -hmm. is, so, is so important. How many people are in the group? It's about 20 people. 20 people. And you how often do you meet? Once a month. Once a month for 20 years. That's 20, amazing. Yeah, I know. Because writers can be ornery is a nice way to say it. It makes it sound like we're sailors. No, it could be like competitive and petty and jealous and, and nervous. And so I, I love that you guys have done that for 20 years. That's really awesome. That's really awesome. Okay, last question. Where can people find out more about you? We'll link book and all that. But if somebody says, I got to know more about Annie, where do they go? Yeah. I would direct people to my website, which is www.anniemurphypaul.com. But I also am really active on Twitter and I love to, you know, encounter and interact with people on Twitter. So I would encourage people to find me there. I'm, my handle is at Annie Murphy Paul. At Annie Murphy Paul. Awesome. AnnieMurphyPaul.com. It's good to have a long name because um, then you didn't have to be like .tv. You know, that's helpful. That's There's not some Russian teenager squatting on your URL. <laughs> that's, that's, nice. that's helpful. Well, Annie, this has been a blast. Again, I highly recommend her book. So fun. We barely, 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 barely scratch the surface. You're going to love this book. Um, and I hope everybody who listens goes out and gets it. Thanks for uh, joining me, Annie. Thank you, John. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Annie Murphy-Paul today. We'll put all the links in the show notes as always. And thank you for reviewing my podcast. You know, reviews are one of those things that if somebody's going to come check out your podcast, like maybe they saw one of the billboards that you have. I have like so many billboards across the country. I really just a lot. I don't have any billboards. Who has billboards for their, their podcast? I don't have billboards. 
But somebody stumbles across your podcast and they look at it and they go, oh, got, got a couple reviews. Let's check this out. So it's super helpful. Thank you for leaving reviews. Please make sure you subscribe or follow or whatever it is that the kids are saying these days. And remember, all it takes is a goal. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the All It Takes is a Goal podcast and to get access to today's show notes and exclusive content from John Acuff, visit acuff.me slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the All It Takes is a Goal podcast.